This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, and welcome to the Monday Morning Break with me, Marie. Um, I am delighted to be welcoming Liz this morning, and we're going to talk about the barriers to attendance. So join us and listen in. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So good morning everyone and I hope that you are all safe and well following the storms um, last night and uh, you've all managed to to travel where you need to go and uh, there wasn't any damage out there. Um, It was very loud where we were but yeah thankfully everything was fine. So as I said I'm really um, really happy to have Liz join us this morning. So good morning Liz. Um, hopefully, are you there, Liz? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Why? Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, so it made me jump in my headphones. Good morning, Liz. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Oh, good. Um, right. So, as I said, we are going to talk about some of the barriers to attendance. Um, there has been a lot of talk about this on um, certainly on X, but I think in workplaces, in places of education. Um, so the government has launched its Moments Matter Attendance Counts campaign recently um, with the aim of, of driving up attendance figures and tackling persistent absence. Um, this has been uh, met with views, hasn't it? I think it's fair to say. Um, I mean, nobody nobody is saying that children, young people shouldn't be attending school. But I think certainly from perhaps the circles I'm in and um, the, the accounts I follow and so on, it, it has been raised that it is a little bit more complicated than that. And that perhaps sometimes there are reasons for the absence. Um, so yeah, and, and Liz, obviously you were you were someone that we we connected um, on this subject, and you were willing to come on and, and talk about it this morning. So if I just um, shall I just introduce you, and then perhaps we could talk about your background a bit. Yes, that sounds a good idea. Yeah. Okay. So I've got here that you are um, Liz is an experienced lead in education and has over twenty five years of working with autistic young people and their families. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, amazing uh, area to work in, and you have a lot of experience. Are you able to kind of tell us a little bit about your background and um, and sort of the roles that you've had in that time? Yes, I started in mainstream primary education and um, quite shortly into my career I met a young um, boy who was quite severely autistic and his parents wanted him to come into mainstream. Um, It was difficult for him, it was difficult for me because as with, well, particularly when I trained, there was very little education for the teachers about autism. Mm, mm-hmm. Having him in my class was definitely a steep learning curve. Um, since then, I would say that while I was in primary education, most classes had some children who would have been on the spectrum. Um, I then moved, I did a master's in special educational needs at Bristol University. And I moved into working in special education. So I first of all worked in a um, school for moderate learning difficulties, secondary. Then I um, I actually worked in an international school for two years with trying to set yeah. up their special needs department, which is that a lot of international schools don't have much input into special needs. And then mm. I worked at an outstanding special school for autism in Woking called Fremantle School. 
Um, following that, I have my last challenge that was in 2020, I opened a school in Basingstoke called the Austin Academy, um, which was for children with autism, higher functioning, I don't really like that term, but um, had been in mainstream, but couldn't cope with the, the stresses and strains of mainstream and were needing a school that would provide a broad curriculum and um, very high anxiety in, in amongst that cohort. So that's sort of a positive history of, of where I've been. Yeah. I mean, what a varied history um, and so many amazing experiences. Um, so were you actually, were you abroad for the international school? Yes, I was in class. Yeah, ah. for two years. I had a, a, an autistic boy in my class to start with, and then we worked on developing their special needs offer. There were several children who were, autistic there, there were no special schools for that sort of international population the the um the, the very different views in different countries about about what you do with with children with special needs so mm. it was an english speaking school um and i had a, a young dutch boy who was bilingual but amazing really amazing experience there yeah, it sounds... a lot with um, English as a second language at that point as well. So there's there's quite a lot of similarities when you have a breakdown of communication because you can't speak the language. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's another whole show in itself, isn't it? <laughs> a kind of international special educational needs provision. Um, yeah, so, and yeah, really interested to you. You've got, obviously, you started, you said you started in mainstream primary um, and then you know, progressed and you did your master's in, um, in, in SEN and then obviously worked in um, SEN schools. Um, so I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we're talking about attendance and so on, I mean, mm. certainly in a mainstream primary, you must have felt that, that pressure, you know, um, on attendance. Um, and I mean, potentially there is a little better understanding to some of the barriers to to attendance in SEN settings. Um, so yeah, I think you've probably got a bit, you've got a comparison of both sort of ends, haven't you, I suppose? Yes, and I do think things have changed since since COVID. There's definitely a, mm. an increase in persistent absence. But I think, uh, you know, there's, there's reasons for that in that, uh, that children learned that they could be educated at home. Yes. Um, and yes. I, I think that, that's particularly for children who find the school environment very difficult to, to bear it they realized that actually there was you know there, there was another choice um, and I think that that's quite um, significant yeah absolutely yeah so if we um we go on to talk about this so as I said the the government has launched its moments matter attendance counts campaign and some some of the statistics and and figures that have come out of this um you know are, are interesting so like you said i think some of it uh, was exacerbated by covid um there are a proportion of young people and pupils that sort of haven't really made it back um significantly after covid um and actually one of the figures is that in 2021 22 more than a quarter of secondary school pupils were classed as persistently absent. So persistently absent being um, missing at least 10%. So that, I mean, that is a quarter, that is that is a big number. Um, and now tackling persistent absence and, and getting pupils back into school has been named as the top priority uh, by Gillian Keegan, the education secretary. So, I mean, the, some of it, the in, in my view, some of it, the, the campaign um, and the support that's being put in sounds valuable. You know, they're talking about putting these um, a pilot program uh, in where attendance mentors will be sort of working with children who are persistently absent um, and helping them them back into school. I mean, I think a very important point that uh, somebody made actually when I was talking about this is that. The attendance figures themselves, or attendance itself, isn't the problem, but poor attendance is signalling there's a problem, and you can't actually make that problem go away by just forcing them to attend. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting, interesting one. Um, so, in your experience, then, Liz, so what are some of the barriers to attendance that you've you've been familiar with? Um. 
Um, having been um, a teacher for the last three years at the Jockey Academy, um, I think the, one of the really significant issues is the not understanding the barriers within um, mainstream secondary schools. So um, it's not just about them coming to school. There's a huge um, stress on them. Once they, for them to attend school, you've got to think about the cause and they're, they're really focusing on the cause and listening to what actually is causing the problem. Um, if people with autism have to keep going into a situation which impacts their sensory difficulties and being told mm -hmm. that they have to just get used to it, that isn't going to solve the problem at all. Um, I think that if you actually start thinking about how many of us would really be happy, lots of people who are at work now have hybrid working opportunities and that's not available for children. Um, well, it's starting to be. There's a couple of schools that have just been registered, I think. Yes. Really yeah, I've, I read about one of those yeah. actually the other day. And yeah. I think that it, it's particularly now when they see their parents working from home sometimes, mm -hmm. they've had opportunities from work to work from home. And then they're forced to go into a situation where right from arriving in the mass of children, you know, if you've got schools of over a thousand, the number of people who are arriving at the same time as you, and there's a, a you know, you, you in secondary schools, children can get um detentions and things for being late they can get to, mm. there seems to be a lot of punishment that um the children with autism that have come to my school have told me about that they're 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 in sort of dread of being told off um i had a parent who was told and this was a school that had um an autism hub um in it so they should have i, I don't know i don't quite you know i only know one part of the story but he was told to to put his child over his shoulder and carry him in if he wouldn't get out of the car. And yeah, I that's that's something that we've heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> traumatic for any parent and mm. the child. Um, I've got another family who I I tried to support. I had three girls who were coming, supposed to be on my role for school, and I. You know, I've, I feel a certain amount of guilt now because I was trying to do what I was told in that they had to come to school and we were trying to do what they needed. But what they needed was something that wasn't a school provision. So, yeah. you know, if, if you don't like people and you have to have continuity, schools quite often don't have continuity because people are away. The person that you've allocated them as their support worker is sick so then they get someone different at the last minute it's really really hard to keep that consistency and if they've had a, a big problem with um trust based on the fact that that consistency has not been there in their previous secondary school it's really hard to mend and i think yeah. that we're then pushing children into continuing to go to the place that they find hardest mm. um I think that, that a lot of the children, when, when I was reading the stats, although they've got persistence absence, a lot of it is that they are away for more than 10% of, of the school week. Um, I can understand that. People with autism find going to school very, very tiring. And so mm. sometimes in the middle of the week, they actually are exhausted. Um, I think also there's there's a little bit of the lessons some lessons you do wonder about the purpose of them when you're a teenager and mm -hmm. if you can read write and at home you can access everything through your computer that you want to learn being told that you have to come in to do subjects that have no interest to you might mm -hmm. well be a barrier um, especially if it's in an environment that you find stressful so i think there's there's a need to really identify places that are neurodiversity they, they affirm that neurodiversity and um really think about what it is and every child every person will be different that's the other problem but yeah. we, you know you can't it's, it's not as easy as putting in ramps for people who've got physical disabilities you've got to find what their barriers are and that yeah. in itself is 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 hard for them to really identify what it is and mm. it takes time so I had some success with children coming into school, but it took time. So there was one um, young person that I started off visiting at their house with my dog. They were stuck in their bedroom. Oh. And the dog got to know the person before I did. 
And then I made very clear that I was going to come on the same day of the week at the same time. And I did it through school holidays and, and it took six weeks. And then that person was able to come and meet me at the school and just look at the outside of the school. And it mm. took weeks and weeks and weeks for them to be able to come actually into the school building. Um, that person still hasn't got 100% attendance, but it's something that I think the last time I heard it was 86%, which is amazing based on the mm. fact that when they were in year nine, they were in a bedroom, not being able to go downstairs for a meal. So, you know, it, it, it's some of the trauma that these people have had is quite intense. And I think that yeah. there's got to be that um, sympathy and empathy. And mm. some of the media representation of the parents is not fair. Um, no. that the parents are the ones, you know, allowing their children not to go to school when actually they're protecting their children's mental health. Uh, yeah, very good point. Um, yeah, there's a few, as I was listening to you, there's a, there was a few things that I was really sort of picking up on. Um, and one was that um, the, the need for continuity, um, the need for building up trust, the need for consistency. Um, and yes, for for children or young people with SEN but also I mean I think in general <laughs> I think a lot of people need that whether um, you know whether whether they've got additional you know an SEN need or not um, and also I think there is a slight little bit of a contradiction isn't it then you know we're saying you're trying to build consistency and, and they have a, a support worker or one-to-one and that who then might be off ill, <laughs> which is going to impact, you well, know, it's, how it's, the, it's, that person It's, you know, illness and, and being off and, and circumstances are a fact of life. Um, yeah. So, you know, there is a little bit of an inconsistency there. Um, the other thing that um, the other thing that I was thinking uh, you were saying about um, detentions for being late and and things like that, I mean, certainly. I mean, again, doesn't have to be SEN, but if you are, you've got anxiety and, and things like that, if you are going to be late and you know you're going to get told off or a detention, it's probably easier to just say, I'm not, I'm ill, I'm not going in. Yeah, I'm not going at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, rather than go in and have to get a detention and be told off, you know, just not going in um they actually there was actually a uh, there was some research done by impact ed um and it was saying the data shows that communicating clear consequences of non-attendance is actually insufficient yeah um so it's you know that people are people are being rewarded for attendance um people are being given detentions but it's all uh, very inconsistent um and actually the the research said uh persistently absent pupils would were almost as likely as pupils with 100% attendance uh to report um consequences so yeah i mean there is a lot of inconsistency around it the other thing i think which is strikingly different is um a couple of weeks ago i went to a conference um, and bearing in mind this was for high needs students. Um, but what they were talking about is that the measures of attendance should be, and are often looked at comparatively. Um, so exactly as you said, you know, for example, you've got a young person who is not able to leave their bedroom and come downstairs to eat a meal. And over time, with time and trust and, you know, strategies, um, loved that you took your dog there. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but over time, you know, they've built up to looking at the school, coming in the school um, to 86%, I think you said. Yes. So that is huge. But I guess, you know, but it, I, I do think it should be looked at that. So from zero for however long up to 86 is a huge achievement. But it is under the 90% mark. So I guess she's still classed as persistently absent. Um, and that, you know, that does seem misjudged, I would say. I think there's, there's that, that, that is one of my sort of bugbears is that they're not looking at mm. how far the young people have come, but rather than the deficit. And I think, yes, um, there's also, um, I, some of the things that, are sort of 
the, the lack of ability to do something as a family because you have to always you know um you, you you can't get permission to take your child out of school is is another thing so you get people lying and saying their children are sick to be able to do family events and i'm not saying i, I think there's a huge problem with cost of holidays which is yes the, it's the time that you could do you know you have visitors from overseas or something and and you still are expected to send your children to school even though that would be educational as well i think mm -hmm. there's there's times that sometimes it is the system and I, I i understand that they want to get numbers up i think that to be in an education system where 20 percent have got persistent absence is a problem but i think mm. that too much um keeping the same education system as we've always had and not looking at other opportunities. Um, I visited a young person who'd, who'd opted out of education at my previous school and she was doing incredibly well at home with mm. a very structured sort of education programme that had been put in place for her at home and school just wasn't a place she could concentrate. I also had a, a boy I was talking to his mother a few um, just just last week and he had moved from a mainstream school, um, he'd been absent for a long time and then he'd been put in a special school and um, she, he had a little rucksack on his back but he wouldn't let me look at this and he wouldn't get anything out and I said to his mum what's in his rucksack? She said oh his ear defenders. He was told off mm -hmm. for those in the previous school. Uh, I think there's a huge lack of understanding of those sensory issues that even people who don't have autism have if they're very stressed. And how, how, there's there's a lot of simple things that could be done that would make the sensory issues of school better. Yeah. Yes, I, I I agree. And you know, as you said, I mean, it is a lot of it is a lot of students and pupils missing a lot of education i mean there's that that's you know, it's no, a fact. There's no, you know that's a fact yeah um and it, it is key that attendance is looked at um because it's important um you know education is important and i i agree with all of that but like but as you said you can't really address it without looking at why the reasons why and what can be done to support some of them coming back in school. I mean, you were saying about um, home educating, and it's, I think, it's about 86,000 families are now electively home educating. Um, because, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, but some of them are going to be um, the, fa the fact that school is not an okay place for their child to go to. Um, you know, when, especially when you bring in their as you've mentioned a couple of times, mental health as well. Um, so yeah, a rise in, in home education, as well as this drop in attendance figures at school. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to talk about, and it is it is a multifaceted issue. Um, so yeah, we'll just go to the news and then uh, we will continue talking. So see you on the other side. Okay. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Ofsted finds itself in the news again 
As inspections paused for two-week period to allow inspectors to undertake mental health awareness training, begin again on the 22nd of January. ITV News shared the results of a survey of almost 2,000 school leaders, which showed that 97% support the removal of single-word judgments. The survey, carried out by NAHT Union, followed the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry. The Union has urged Ofsted to implement a number of changes, including a mechanism for school leaders to halt an inspection where an inspector's conduct falls below standards, extending the notice period schools receive for inspection, and asking them to revert to a process, however temporarily, of ungraded inspections similar to those conducted during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the BBC reports that Ofsted has apologised fully for the first time for the role it played in Ruth Perry's death. The apology came at the same time as Ofsted responded to the coroner's prevention of future deaths notice. In the PFD response, new Ofsted chief Sir Martin Oliver said, such tragedies should never happen again, and that he apologised sincerely for the part inspection played in her death. Since the death of Mrs Perry, Schools judged as inadequate on safeguarding alone are now re-inspected within three months. Ofsted also changed its confidentiality rules to allow heads to speak to colleagues, family, friends and health professionals about outcomes of inspections before the report is actually published. The Department for Education has committed to working with Ofsted to review things during a consultation in the spring, which it is calling the Big Listen. Education unions praised Ofsted's positive steps, but said they were only the beginning. The weather has been front and centre of the news this week, with schools across parts of Wales and Scotland being forced to close due to snow. Icy conditions and weather warnings made for tricky travel and forced school closures in areas badly affected. For those concerned that the post-pandemic impact of remote learning would mean the end of snow days, Pictures on social media and local news proved that this was not always the case. But anyone worried that the icy blasts will last can be assured that the weather is set to return to normal over the next few days. Authors, including Sir Michael Morpogo and Mallory Blackman, have written an open letter urging the government to invest in early years reading. According to a Book Trust survey, only half of children between one and two from low-income families are read to daily, with some families struggling to access books and being in need of support. The letter from authors is addressed to both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Sakir Starmer and says it is not right that children from poorer backgrounds are deprived of a life rich in reading. Sir Michael Mopogo is president of the Charity Book Trust and helped launch their new campaign Get Reading to support disadvantaged children in family reading. He spoke on BBC Radio 4's Today programme saying that the younger that children are introduced to the power of stories, the better chance there is of putting them on an extraordinary pathway of knowledge, understanding and empathy. He also said that books need to be free at the point of delivery, like the health service. A DFE spokesperson said, we are committed to raising literacy for children but Sir Michael said that these efforts are clearly not enough. Finally, The Guardian features an article which looks at research in America that appears to show that children learn better on paper than on screens. The research follows headlines across the pond which focused on the nationwide collapse in reading scores among American youths, citing a four-point drop in the comprehension skills of 13-year-olds, falling below skill levels of 1971 for the worst performing students. Politicians appear to be assigning blame to the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, with remote learning being labelled as bad for students by the Biden administration. Others blame teachers who they say lobbied for lockdowns. However, the article itself focuses on a new study by neuroscientists at Columbia University's Teachers College, which appears to show there is a clear advantage to reading a text on paper rather than on a screen because it leads to what they describe as deeper reading. A sample of 59 children aged 10 to 12 were asked to complete a series of tasks, which led researchers to conclude that we should not yet throw away printed books and shouldn't rely on the digital revolution just yet. 
Further details can be read on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Okay, so welcome back. Um, great, very interesting um, news uh, there. I think I'm just writing. I'm just writing down a note to look at that story on the Guardian because really interested in that. Um, I know I do better with um, reading on paper rather than on screen. Um, I also like to sort of make notes and things like that. So um, yeah, I can I can understand that. I think um, the other thing to mention um, is very, very excited about The Better Show um, this week, um, 24th to the 26th of January. Um, so I will be there on the Wednesday along with um, Poppy Gibson and Tom Rogers. So yeah, anyone that's listening that's coming to The Better Show, um, come and say hi to us. Um, Poppy and I will be hoping to talk to as many people as we can uh, from the Teacher Talk Radio stand. So yeah, really looking forward to that. Um, and obviously as well, you know, seeing all the other exhibitors and stands and and finding out about what's new in in education and and technology so yeah looking forward to that um right so to return to the topic today on on absence and barriers to attendance so we've sort of talked liz haven't we? we've talked about sen uh we've talked about the sensory environment of school um we've talked about you know um the fact that children and young people, you know, post-COVID and the world has changed a bit, um, a lot, but they might see that their parents are working from home. Uh, they themselves might have found working from home, remote learning a lot a lot better for them. Um, and then we've talked about kind of issues with uh, continuity within the school environment um, and this, this thing about sanctions and detentions and so on, and, and attendance awards. Um, so there are a lot of barriers. Um, can you think of any, I mean, uh, the other one, I suppose, is, is illness as well. I mean, there was a story, wasn't there? There's a news story that was um, in The Independent that was saying, you know, parents being told to uh, just send them in if they've got a cold and, and so on. Um, which is, yeah, I just, I, I know if my... Uh, children are poorly um, sometimes they just want to be at home and it's the same as us isn't it as adults if you're feeling really rotten you don't really want to go into work and also you don't really want to spread it around everyone else so yeah um <laughs> yeah exactly are there are there other barriers that you you think that we should discuss or is there I anything think, big that I've missed there I think there's a, a difference in things that children have to cope with so I, mm. I think the social media um, aspect of mobile phones is something that is uh, a problem um, it's been a problem yes. for a number of years I remember having to make sure that all my children's um, phones were downstairs um, when they went to bed because um, my, my daughter had something <laughs> that we you know and, and things actually coming into your home the sort of bullying that that happens it, it, teenagers sometimes don't realize that they're being as nasty as they are i, I don't think mm. but the the fact that it, you can't get away from it now i think has a huge impact on mental health um i also think but back to the sort of people working from home i know if my husband is working from home the routine is different so when you, you know when i was going to school the routine of getting up going to school was always the same everyone was busy getting up moving and everything led to going to school whereas i think when parents are working from home there is a different atmosphere in the morning it's not quite mm. the same routine um so that can impact on whether children want to go to school or not and it's easier you know if, if you're working from home if someone does have a, a cold or something you can actually manage that much more easily and keep them at home can't you um whereas oh definitely you know if, yeah if everyone's going out to work you go oh, just get on with it have a lem sip and yes <laughs> but, you know we 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 are able to say well actually you can have a 
another half hour in bed and, and rest today mm. and get rid of that horrible cold feeling because there is nothing worse than going to school with a really bad cold oh it's horrible isn't it it's awful yeah. um yeah and uh, you're right though i yeah I, I hadn't thought of that but yeah that changing routine or just changing atmosphere i suppose in the morning is different isn't it if you're all rushing i don't know queuing for the bathroom got to get out the door and everyone's going off to work it's sort of i guess there's a momentum but if it's a bit sort of oh i'm working from home today so i'm just taking my time a little bit i don't know maybe some of that momentum is gone you're right um and equally yes if you're um parent you know as a parent if you're you've got a big day and you've got to be in work and, and so on there is a tendency to be like oh you'll be fine you know you'll be fine by break time you just got to get in there um whereas like you said if you you could just be like oh it's fine you'll have to stay quiet because i've got some meetings online but you know you can stay yeah. here yeah definitely um yeah the, the other Sorry, there's also the the issue of sort of computer games and 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 things like that. That there's more distraction at home. You know, I remember yeah. it being very boring staying at home because I couldn't. <laughs> yes. So I didn't. You know, there's there's that element is that you you've you've got still you've got many more things you could do at home than you used to be able to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If I was ill when I was a child, I just had to stay upstairs, stay in bed, couldn't do anything. Um, you know, if you're ill enough to stay off school, you're not well enough to get up and and do yeah. things. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you're right. I mean, I know what I'm like with, with my children are ill. There's, I don't really, I don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, it's a different ethos, isn't it? it is. There are things that they can be doing that... You, you, yeah. you know they're not running around necessarily so they no. you feel that they're resting um yes, exactly. I, I think that one of the things that concerns me about the the sort of recent media campaigns some there has is some blame being put on parents and i think i yes. do worry about that because there are yeah. a lot of parents i've met who they they're desperate for their children they would like nothing better than their children to be in school but instead they've got children who can't leave their bedrooms because their mental health is so poor and i to to start sort of putting the pressure back on them is is wrong we've got to look at what we're offering the families instead oh i totally agree there's a lot of focus with schools now that you go to litigation much quicker and instead mm. of working with, you know, I've, I, instead of working with those parents and really trying to build the trust up, instead you, right, okay, um, you've had children off, the, the county or whatever are starting to say, well, there's a litigation team. And yeah. I don't think that litigating against children who've got mental health issues and they actually can't leave their bedrooms is a, a very empathetic and kind society. No, absolutely not. I mean, the hope, I suppose, is with these these hubs, um, these attendance hubs that are, are being set up. I mean, it does say, um, yeah, she's. it says that intensive one-to-one support is offered to pupils who are persistently absent alongside work with their families to find out why the child um, is, is absent. So, I mean, that would be the hope, wouldn't it? Is, you, you know, rather than just sanctions and punishments and... Uh, if the fear of being put into it i think yes but it's yeah that this is something that's not going to go away without funding being put into working yeah. doing it properly and and understanding i think as well like you said the, the, the media representation is is not is quite negative um and like you said uh, that really that really um, resonated when you said that um you know, you've worked with parents who would like nothing more than their children to go to school. And yeah, absolutely agree. We've had the same experience. Um, and, and it is heartbreaking. And we've also heard the same stories that someone said, well, you've just got to, you know, get them in. You've just got to, and, and the parent is saying, how can I? They're a 15-year-old boy, you know, they're bigger than me or whatever. Um, and highly, highly distressing as well um, for everyone. You know, the child, the parent, the carer um so yeah i i agree there is blame being put on parents who the other thing i've found sorry i've interrupted you um is i've had parents who've been desperate for cam support and there isn't enough out there and also sometimes with with 
I've I've heard people saying to Cam's people saying, well, we're not skilled in working with people with autism, so we mm-hmm. can't have our help. And there, there's so many there's so many sort of you, you can't say that people with autism don't have mental health problems because <laughs> no. they do. Um, yeah, but they just might need different type of therapy. But but it there it isn't out there, and there's a lot of people that I know who've been crying out for help, and they they don't get it and then they stop trusting you know that the help will come yes that's it absolutely i mean actually they uh, you know one of the reports is saying that attenders attendance drivers sorry are actually uh, are, are intersectional so for example pupils who are both pupil premium and send have lower attendance rates um, and, and gender comes into that as well. They were saying um, that the difference is particularly stark for female pupil, premium pupils, well, that's a tongue twister, mm-hmm. with SEND um, between sort of year nine and year 11. So you've got, gen, you know, gender, age, um, SEND, pupil premium. I mean, there are so many factors to this, aren't they? So let's just have, have a little couple of minutes to think about that and we will be back in a moment. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the Eton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. So, big thank you to our sponsors for the show. Um, Liz, we've got about ooh, 15 minutes left. I, I knew that this was going to go very quickly. <laughs> um, but perhaps if we could just move on to, so what can we do? Um, you know, there is this uh, this government uh, campaign and drive and these things are being set up. But, but as educators and as people working with young people and pupils and and so on what can we what can we actually do um so you've talked about one strategy already and that was uh, with your lovely dog what's your dog called i've got I've, I've actually got two that have gone into schools one oh. my, one's called milo and he's a cockapoo and he was really really well he was such a positive um I used to call him my, my, my best t- teaching assistant. He'd come out, <laughs> um, I'd have children arriving at the school who'd been out of school for a long time and they'd sort of get stuck in their cars and he'd come out and, and meet and greet at the cars and then before you knew it, the children had taken the lead and they were being taken into school by them. So he was very good like that, but he he, he and my other little girl called Rusa, they, they are... It, it gives a diversion, a, a distraction from mm. talking about the children, and they're very non-judgmental dogs. Um, so we definitely had a group of children who basically came into school because they'd see the dogs. And, yeah. Um, I had I used them a lot right the way through the, um, the school. Um, times when teenagers had sort of um, gone back underneath their hoods and didn't want to talk to me, I'd sometimes just go and sit by them and the dog would come and sit by them and suddenly they were stroking the dog and we were talking about the dog and mm. the issue had gone. So I think, I, I do believe in dogs in schools, but I will say say that it's got to be the right dog and there's got to be a really important relationship with the owner and an understanding that dogs will get very tired um yes i i 
was very passionate about the welfare of my dogs as well as the welfare of the children. Um, it, it's it's so important to realise how tiring it is when they've met, you know, mm. lots of people and they, they, they're taking in some of that energy, that negative energy, I think. Um, so dogs is one thing, but I think the having, having a sort of consistent team it's better than having one person to work with a per, um someone because then if if one person's away you've got another person who might be able to come in and and meet and greet them i think the actual transition from home to school is is difficult so enabling that transition to work so they that the people might be able to come in at a slightly later time when it's quieter and get used to being in the school building before being thinking that you're going to be learning in my view nobody can learn if you're not feeling emotionally safe so you've got to focus on that safety before anything else um, and really enable them to feel comfortable in the environment before you're expecting them to be in a situation where they might have to concentrate and learn Um, I also think from the special school point of view, some of our children had to travel a very, very long way. And that was a barrier to their attendance. You know, I had one girl who was travel sick and lived a good 45 minutes away in a, in a, in a vehicle. And that was a, a barrier to her attendance because she, she struggled to get into the car. Um, yeah. And if she did, when she did arrive, she was feeling unwell. Um, and to be told, you know, oh, well, someone should give her anti-sickness medication. Well, that makes people sleepy. So there's mm. lots of things. And I, I wouldn't want to, you know, some of the children coming to, to the Austin Academy had a long journey. And yet if they were coming, so say if they got on a minibus, it might stop lots of time. So their journey that would normally take 20 minutes took an hour. And they, you know, that's a good reason not to get, I, I wouldn't be wanting to commute mm-hmm. a long way to work. And I think this is the same. So I think having opportunities to have small hubs in lots of different places would actually be, it, it's, it's a big change from the big schools. And it's, it's it, I know financially it isn't necessarily something that people think about, but I do think that attending a very large secondary school is hard for lots of children especially if their primary school has been quite small and the difference Mm. between a primary school education and secondary is huge Um, and a lot of people seem to be being diagnosed with autism quite late so they they don't get a diagnosis until maybe they're year eight when they've been out of school for a year and Mm. it, it might be that they're not that their their autism they managed at mainstream primary school because it was a safe environment. Um, I think that there's got to be some listening going on. I I really believe that there is a um, a gap in the listening skills of educationalists hmm. um, when it comes when it comes to children, and their voices aren't always heard. So they're not they're not encouraged to be to have self advocacy, or if they are people don't actually listen to them and the, their views yeah. being really considered and if if they're being told oh yes tell me what's wrong and then nothing happens why would you think that yeah it's worth telling anyone what's wrong absolutely I mean that's the thing isn't it it's just so many children and young people are not happy at school to the ex- to the extent that they're not going in mm-hmm. so until we actually ask why and and listen to the answer and then do something like that's just not going to change is it no and school hasn't really changed this apart from having a an electronic whiteboard as opposed to a blackboard <laughs> you know a, a whiteboard with a pen the, yeah. the they're, they're still sitting in rows looking at the front and um exams are still on paper I, mm. it doesn't make any sense to me really in, in fact the world has changed so much so that i think there's quite a lot of pedagogy that needs to be thought about um yeah and and instead of it sort of being you're going to learn this lesson objective really sort of looking at big questions and what are we going to find out today and how we're going to use all the the technology that's available to us so they're learning about technology and that it's interesting and you can use it in lots of different ways and and things like you know radio podcasts and radio presentations why are we not looking Mm. more at those sort of ways of of, um assessment 
So I, I'm, and the other thing I'm quite passionate about as well. I, I um, did quite a lot of forest school at the school, one of the special yeah. schools I went to, and it. I did that was what I wrote my dissertation about when I was um, doing my um, special needs um, masters about the power of outdoor education and how it then can impact on relationships within the classroom. I had a um, group of um, about seventeen year tens, and we'd take them to um, a local forestry commission um, forest school and watching their interaction change from the uh, quite negative interaction between some of the students and then when they were having to do things together as a team building things and being outside it changed it really very very powerfully and it had a huge impact on them within the classroom as well and I think this is we, we we need to be looking at how how you could do more education that that means that people feel comfortable with each other um yeah that's that's really really important i think i mean one of the things one of the key sort of um ways of increasing attendance i think has got to be that sense of belonging mm. that um that wanting to be there. Um, so yeah, I think it's very interesting, you know, to, to look at outdoor education and and working together. And, and again, I suppose that creates a sense of belonging as well. I think the other thing that is missing at the moment is a lack of, um, in, in there's so much to learn when people are doing teacher training. My daughter um, did a, a skit course um, and is now teaching music up in North London. And her special educational needs um, training was two hours one afternoon, um, which is not enough. No, <laughs> not at all. No. So I think that actually looking at what we're teaching, what we're putting through to teachers, because there's a lot of communication skills and, and things like that and realizing that children aren't being rude to you when they some some of the communication skills of people with autism are somewhat direct and can come across mm. as being rude but yeah so i think that 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 actually that there's lots of sort of aspects of education that that if I could wave a magic wand, I would be looking at funding and giving much more education to to um, all teachers to understand autism and, and those sort of mental health, sort of neurodiversity and their sensory needs. Because the sensory needs it actually affect everyone. I, you know, I don't know about you, yes. but if I'm, if I'm tired and hungry, my sensory needs are different than if they're if I'm not yeah. feeling if I'm feeing happy. I can cope with lots of different things. Absolutely. It, it can just be that a classroom is, you know. Oh, I think we might have lost you for a minute there, Liz. Um, but yeah, totally agree. I think we're down to the, I think we're down to the same things as, as we often are, aren't we? It's time and, and money um, and training. And then time to implement that as well. Um, yeah, I agree. If we could wave a magic wand and put all of those things in place, then yes, that would um, <laughs> that would help. But yeah, I think the the things that I've I've looked at of um, increasing attendance, well, increasing attendance or remove you know removing or reducing those barriers. Um, one of the things we touched on earlier was was um, cams. Um, so the waiting lists are incredibly long um, and I think I, I know a lot of um, CAM services are extremely overstretched and you will be um, they, they will be focusing on on those that are in very high need or crisis um, so I think things like yeah CAMs CAMs are they may not be able to see cams um, about this. And also teachers are extremely stretched as well. Everyone's, um, you know, everyone's workload is is really, is high. Um, so thinking about some just some things that could be discussed or um, could be brought in, um, particularly around, you know, emotionally based um, school avoidance or SEN needs, um, 
there are things like uh, helping helping children and young people recognise those um, recognise how they're feeling or what's triggering those those feelings of the anxiety. Um, as as we were saying, it could be sensory, it could be um, to do with a number of things. So it could be something coming up that day and, and that's causing them a lot of anxiety. Could be that it's a very, very busy environment that day. Or, you know, as, as you said, Lisa, they've been tried to come in and it's been met with thousands of people all moving around in a really busy busy building so I think the you know a really good starting point is is recognizing helping children to recognize and then talk about what it is that's causing those anxieties um I'm hoping Liz if you I think you've connected again yes ah excellent excellent so yeah just for the last couple of minutes have you got some some tips some ideas for anyone anyone out there that's the other thing is 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 children come in some children come in and they're very hungry so yes I think giving them, I know that teenagers particularly get very hungry. So, I, you know, having opportunities for breakfast clubs and things like that, hugely important. Um, and giving them safe, safe spaces. So making sure there are places that if people feel overwhelmed that they can go to and they're not closed so that they, they are available when the mm. children need it, not when there's someone to man it. If you understand what I mean, it, it's got to be somewhere where they can access at any point, not just at break time. Yeah, very, yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, like you said as well, um, that transition in from home to school is um, can be really difficult, very overwhelming, and. <coughs> You said earlier, you know, children cannot learn unless they're feeling emotionally safe um, and having those other needs met as well. Like you said, you could be just hungry, um, especially when we refer back to that inter intersectionality about, you know, the impact on attendance and those barriers. Um, so, yeah, anything like breakfast clubs, safe spaces, trusted men uh, members of staff. I really liked what you said earlier about it being you know, a team of trusted staff or more than one, basically, um, so that you've got that consistency if someone's off. Sometimes things like school uniform are a barrier because they've got sensory yeah. issues in relating to um, their... their, mm. their or, or even that they can't afford their school shoes or whatever it is. You know, I yeah. think there's, there's elements now of poverty as well. But I, I particularly think that for some of the learners that I've been used to is that being able to wear jogging bottoms is a, a deal breaker as opposed yeah. to scratchy school trousers. Yes, hoodies, like you said, because having, you know, that hood up um, can can be, you know, a comfort, can't it? Um, yeah, and post poverty, yeah, you know, that even not just even buying the clothes, but washing them, um, those kind of things. They they just all have such a wide-ranging well, um, impact. School's got very strict rules about um, school uniform and you haven't washed the, their, their school uniform and they can't wear anything else, can they? So they can't go to school. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Um, Liz, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you about this. I mean, it is... It is such a uh, wide-ranging topic, isn't it? And it and it is, yeah, it's huge. Um, and but I believe it deserves a lot of talking about and and thought um, beyond the kind of skiving, you know, or parents letting their children skive because um, they can't be bothered to send them in. I mean, I think there's just so many so many areas of this that need thinking about and discussing. But thank you so much for your time um, in coming in and talking about it. Um, and, um, you know, I'm over on X and on LinkedIn and so on and on the Teachers Talk radio um, page. So if anybody wants to continue this conversation or has any thoughts, um, any top tips, uh, things that have worked, would absolutely love to to carry on and um liz i'm sure you you know if if we get anything i'd be very happy to pass it on to you as well okay. um but that's been yeah that's been brilliant and i hope there's something in that 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 helps anyone who's who's out there and um because i think as well one of the impacts that we haven't talked about um is the is the stress the additional stress for teachers um if they've got 
people in their class, their tutor group and so on, senior leaders, persistently absent children, it is additional stress and pressure on them as well, um, particularly if they are educators who think about these kind of issues. So, yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, thanks again, Liz. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.